Well, you all might have heard of the newlywed couple that decided to celebrate their very first Easter uh, by inviting the entire family over for a big Easter dinner. And uh, the husband comes into the kitchen while the wife's doing some preparation and decides that he's going to help out a little bit. And, and he notices over on the counter is the ham, but both of the ends of the ham are cut off. And he's thinking to himself, why would you like cut off a perfectly good end to these ham? Like those could be used as well. And because he's young and still stupid enough to say this to his wife, he says, why would you cut off the ends to the ham? And his, his wife looks back at him and says, well, that's how you cook a ham. And he's like, no, no, it's not. Like that, I've never seen that happen. And it's like, why would you do that? And kind of defensively, she says, well, that's because my mom. My mom taught me how to do that. And so he, he realized, that, you know, like, I'm going to put this to rest for a little while and maybe come back to revisit a little bit later. Well, uh, later that evening, the family comes over for dinner. And as he's sitting at the table across from his mother-in-law, he looks to her and he says, you know, I noticed earlier that your daughter had cut off both ends of the ham. And she said that you taught her to do that. Like, why? Like, is that true? And she's like, yeah, that's, that's how you cook a ham. And he goes, well, like, why would you do that? And he's like, well, that's... She's, that's because that's how like, you cook a ham. That's how my mom taught me how to cook a ham. Well, it just so happens that grandma happens to be there at this particular dinner. She's sitting at the end of the table, and the husband looks to grandma. He's like, Grandma, why why you cut the ends off the ham? Did you teach your, your daughters to do this? And, and she goes, I didn't teach you to cut the ends of the ham off. And they're like, yes, you did. Like, you did that every, every Easter. And, and she goes, silly, my pan wasn't big enough for the ham. Yes, I know. Thank you for the grumbles. That's the only humor that you're going to have today, all right? We're going to talk about the Bible today. My, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I promise that there's relevance to that story. I just told you. We're going to see that here in a minute. Uh, but I got to tell you, uh, talking about the Bible, like I am incredibly excited about this topic today because I think it's going to create some, some freedom and some pers uh, perspectives that will really help you. But, but also, it's incredibly intimidating to talk about this uh, for a couple reasons. One, I, I think uh, like we, we just need to be able to make sure we have a right approach and perspective of this, and, and I don't want you to hear things wrongly. And so I'm going to do my very best I can to talk to you all about this, but it's going to be a mouthful, all right? So I need you all to hang in there with me. Uh, but here's the deal. Rest assured, today uh, and in this series, as we talk about the Bible, uh, we're not going to be cutting anything off of or out of the Bible, all right? Um, as a matter of fact, last week we started this series, and we, we shared with you all a couple of truths right from the very beginning. We want you all to understand and know. And, and as Trace Church, we believe that the entire Bible is the inspired Word of God. We also believe that the Bible is true. And we also think that you should study it for yourself. And, and we put you in environments where you can do that. And if you don't happen to have a Bible, man, we'd love to get you a Bible. But with that being said, I think we oftentimes approach the Bible the same way the wife did the ham. We oftentimes simply accept what is given to us instead of asking the right questions that would help us to better approach it and understand how it's been handed down to us. Now, just for a minute, I want you to think back to the very first time that you got your first Bible. All right. Now, when you got your first Bible, it was it was probably chaptered and versed and footnoted and, and probably uh, like leather bound. Maybe even you had your name kind of written in gold letters on the front. Like it's basically symbolizing the gold letters that you're going to have written in the book of life in heaven or something. I don't know why they did that, but they did that. Right. And you probably got your Bible. Maybe it was from uh, maybe it was from a pastor or maybe it was from a parent or a friend. Maybe it could have been from a complete stranger. But it was all it was it was given to you with this premise. All of us had the same premise. This is the word of God. It is all true. Don't question it. Read it and do everything it says. 
right? That, that's kind of the premise that we were given when we were handed this Bible. Now, if you're anything like me, you cherish that Bible that was given to you. And you said, you know what? I'm going to commit to reading this. I'm going to start. And so you started in the beginning because that's where you start with the book, right? And you started in Genesis and you got through Exodus and you saw these stories and they're kind of weird and kind of confusing, but they were awesome. So like you made your way through there, right? Until you got to Leviticus, right? And at, at that point, <clears throat> Not only are you losing the storyline, but you might have lost consciousness at that point, right? You start to lose interest. You start to lose hope that you're ever going to finish this book in the first place. And worse than that, you started to realize that if you did everything that this book said, you start to read these things for yourself, you'd have to start slaughtering animals, stoning your friends, and starving yourselves from all the, the delicious food that you typically enjoy, right? And, and you realize, man, this is not going to be good in all reality, if you did everything that the Bible told you to do, you'd not only be exhausted, you'd also be in prison, all right? The, the reality is, is like, you know, animal sacrifice and stoning people is like frowned upon in most of the 50 states, all right? I'm pretty sure that that's the case. You can't do that anymore. And, and so here's the deal. We all have a basic level of understanding when it comes to the Bible. Now, statistics would say that, that most of us have access to multiple ones of these in our homes, but the majority of us sitting in this room have never read this thing cover to cover. We've not read it for ourselves. But even with a basic level of understanding, we understand that there's a distinction between some of the books that make up the Bible. But most of us don't know why we obey certain things and not others. We don't know why we cut the, the ends off of the ham. And so what I want to do today is I want to have a conversation with you guys about what that looks like and how we actually came to understand the Bible in the first place. And I'll remind you of something that we, we learned last week, and it's this. When you don't have a proper understanding of the Bible, you will use it wrong. Inevitably, you will. You'll, you'll apply it wrong to your own life, and you'll convey it wrongly to other people. And so when you don't have a proper understanding of the Bible, you'll use it wrong. Now, one of the things that I've found is, 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 that has been very, very helpful to me in my approach to the Bible is actually understanding how it came to be in the first place. Understanding the story of the Bible, of how it came to be, has helped me understand the stories in the Bible and how I'm supposed to approach them, how I'm supposed to apply them to my life. You see, this book is so much more than just a book. It is one Bible. It divided up in two distinct sections we call testaments or, or covenants. It's written by 40 different authors. There's 66 different books that make up this compilation. And it's written over the course of about 1,500 years. But how you got your Bible is not how the world got the Bible. And I believe that when you properly understand how we got the Bible, then it'll help you understand the stories in the Bible and how you approach them. So today, we're going to be continuing in a series that we call Text, and the title of this message is this, The Bible for Grown-Ups. And so we're going to be taking a look at a grown-up level understanding of the Bible and how it came to be. Now, all throughout this series, we'll be taking a look at the letter that was written to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, by a guy named Paul. And, and so we're going to be actually focusing in today and in your groups this week uh, on chapter 4 of Galatians. If you're not in a neighboring group, like, let me beg and plead with you to get into a neighboring group for this series. It will help you guys digest some of the stuff that we're talking about on Sunday in those groups. Just stop by the green wall after service and you can get connected there. Now, just to remind you of some of the context, if you missed last week, uh, there's a guy named Paul who's a follower of Jesus, and he's writing back to the churches that he planted in Galatia, which is a Roman province, which is like modern-day Turkey. Now, these Galatians are Gentiles, which means they're non-Jewish people, but they're being persuaded by Jewish Christians to not only follow Jesus, but also to follow the law. In other words, the Jewish Christians are saying that Jesus isn't enough. It's Jesus plus 
the law of Moses, which is causing a great deal of confusion. So Paul writes back to them for this very specific reason to be able to warn them of that. And and so we'll pick up in, in chapter 4, verse 21. This is what Paul says. He says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, in other words, you Galatians that are trying to go back to the law because these other guys are telling you to do this, do you even know what the law actually says? In other words, you're not even familiar with the Jewish text. You don't know the Jewish history. You don't know what it even says. Do you you even know what it says? And then he proceeds to go ahead and give them a little bit of a history lesson so that they can understand what it is that they're actually trying to be convinced to go back to in the first place. And that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to give you kind of a a quick flyby on this. And so hold on to your seats. We're going to move quickly through this. Um, when Paul refers to the scriptures, not only in the Galatians text, but in other places that he writes, what he's not, he's not referring to the Bible. We don't have the Bible at this point in time in history. What he's referring to is actually the, the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures. They're more commonly referred to as the law and the prophets. See, these scriptures included the story of creation, the ancestry of the Jewish people, the interaction of God with the surrounding world, and a whole lot of rules and regulations that pertain to a promise that he made with the nation of Israel. You see, this book is comprised of 39 different works over the course of about a thousand years, and it tells the history of the Jewish people. You see, all of this Jewish history is written by different people at various times between about 1400 and 400 BC, give or take a couple hundred years in when it was actually compiled. But it's been recorded, it's been compiled, and it's been preserved in what we now know as uh, the Tanakh. All right. Now, I didn't know this, and so I want to share this with you because this is one of those insights for me. I never knew this, but th- this, this compiled scripture called the Tanakh is actually an acronym, and, and this is what it stands for. It stands for the Torah, which is the law, uh, the Nevim, which is the, the prophets, and the Ketavim, which is the, the additional writings. And I thought that was a kind of like really, really cool. But all of this stuff comes together in the Tanakh, and this is Jewish history written by Jewish people in the Jewish language which is, which is Hebrew. And the Tanakh would be considered what we call today the Old Testament. But guys, catch this. Don't miss this. For the Jewish people, there was nothing old about this. This was and it is the Jewish scriptures to Jewish people. And it holds value to them even today. But, but even when the story ends in the Jewish text, we still don't have what we call the Bible. All we have is a bunch of dispersed Jewish people with unfulfilled messianic pro, uh, prophecies. That's what we have right here in this Tanakh, this Old Testament, as we call it. These are the Jewish scriptures. But when the right time came, going back to Paul as he's talking to these, these Gentiles, he gives them a flyby of this Jewish history and he helps them understand. He says, everything in this book came to a conclusion. It came to an end without like the ending. But, but when the right time came, something happened. And this is what he says to the Galatians. God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, just like everybody else in the Old Testament. But God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. You see, Paul, a Jew of Jews, as he would actually refer to himself, he devoted his life to studying this. He knew the scriptures of the Jewish people inside and out. It wouldn't have been uncommon for, for him to actually memorize the entirety of the Torah and most of the other prophetic writings. He knew this thing inside and out, which makes him the perfect person to make this particular segue. You see, what happened was is he claims and his life reflects that something happened that changed everything, that changed the end of the story for the Jews. We know that is Jesus. See, Jesus came on the scene, 
And his life, and more importantly, his death and resurrection were so impressive that multiple people, both Jew and Greek or Gentile, decided to record his life and his teachings. Let me be abundantly clear. We would not have the Bible if there was no Jesus. I know that might sound like, yeah, duh, I get that, I understand that, but a lot of us don't really realize this. We would not have this compilation that has survived centuries of time if, if, if there was no Jesus. More specifically, we would not have the Bible if there was no resurrection. You see, if Jesus didn't actually come back from the grave, his writings and his teachings and his life would not have been nearly as important. There would have been no need for this. It would have quickly faded away, but yet we have it here today because of Jesus. But up until this point, when, when Paul is actually speaking to the Galatians, they still don't have the Bible. Matter of fact, the Galatian people during Paul's lifetime would never have the Bible as we understand it and as we know it. So how did we get the rest of the Bible? I feel a little like Paul Harvey right now. I'm going to tell you all the rest of the story, okay? How did we get what we call the New Testament? Now, because of what Jesus did, it was so remarkable that Luke tells us that many people have actually set out to write accounts of the events of the life of Jesus. Many people. Now, you all need to understand, in, in the ancient world, it was rare to have multiple accounts of the life of one person. It was rare to even have somebody who was significant enough that people would take the time and the money and, and, and the availability to actually write about it. We, we actually have four separate and reliable accounts from guys like John, one of Jesus' closest friends. Bring it on up. And, and, and John actually tells the story of Jesus from his own account and his particular uh, uh, version. We have stories from, from Mark, who actually is, is credited as being the, the earliest writer of, of the gospel of Jesus. We have guys like Matthew, the, the tax collector, who actually wrote down and recorded the things that he personally saw and witnessed Jesus do. We have guys like Luke, the, the doctor who was like particularly and meticulously detailed about his particular understanding of how Jesus did what he did. And so we have these, these stories of what would be considered the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? But to these guys, it wasn't the gospels. This was simply the story as they understood Jesus, and they thought it was worthy of writing down, and so they did. But in the meantime, while they were compiling these stories, the early church leaders and planters began to write letters to help direct and guide and remind people of Jesus. As a matter of fact, those of you all that have some of those letters, go ahead and start bringing them up right now. You see, uh, people like Peter, the fisherman, wrote down the stories of his accounts, and they, they helped, people to, he helped people understand not only who Jesus was, but what he was asking of us and how we could stay directed in, in, in what he was saying that we should do. And people like Paul wrote not only to the Galatians, but also to other churches in the area. And his letters actually formed the majority of the New Testament. Y'all can just set them right here. They formed the majority of the New Testament. And, and then you have guys like James, the very brother of Jesus, who wrote about his own brother. Guys, you all need to understand, I've got two brothers, one older and one younger. You know what I have to do to convince them that I was the son of God? Like, think about that. Okay, what would you have to do to convince your own sibling? that you are the son of God. Like, that's amazing. The fact that James actually came to believe in Jesus. He didn't first, but he came to believe in Jesus and he wrote about him and they compiled these letters and these letters, these letters came together to form what we understand as the New Testament. But you need to understand that these guys, they had no clue that what they were writing would ultimately be included in a book that has changed the modern world as we know it. They had no clue. 
They, they weren't writing submissions to be entered into the good book at the time that they were writing them. That's, that's not how they, they processed it. They might not even have known the things that they were writing were inspired at the time that they were writing. But, but make, make no bones about it. History shows us that the early church, as early as they started getting these things, they saw these texts as being reliable and sacred and inspired and even Scripture. Because, because they had received them and they treasured these writings and they went to great pains to preserve these individual fragments of writings. As a matter of fact, we see in history, there's a guy named Diocletian and during his rule and reign in, in Rome, uh, not only was there a great persecution, but they started to collect all the Christian scriptures, not the compiled Bible that we have today. There's still no Bible. They started to collect all these, these scriptures that were written by Mark, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And what they were doing was they are burning all of these scriptures, like we got to do away with this whole thing. And we see the early church actually gathering around some of these sacred texts, sometimes just fragments of these writings from John and Mark and Matthew and Luke and Paul. And, and they were willing to risk their lives, and some of them even gave up their life in order to preserve these things because to them, they were inspired scripture about the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ well before they were ever included in the Bible. Now, <clears throat> here's the deal. Um, in the fourth century, uh, a guy named Constantine comes into power. And at this point in time, he actually lifts the ban uh, on Christianity as well as some other religions. And, and what it happens is, is it allows the scholars who've been working kind of in the dark to actually come out into the light and actually start to work on the compilation of these scriptures. And this is an amazing thing to me, guys. The, the very nation, Roman nation, that was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus actually becomes the nation that funds the collection and the replication of all these books. This is amazing to me. I love how God works sometimes. They actually started to fund the copying of these sacred texts. And in AD 367, this guy named Athanasius, everybody say Athanasius. All right, now say it five times real fast. I'm just joking. You don't have to do that. Okay, but somebody should name their kid that. That's an awesome name. And here's one of the reasons why, because he's the first person that we see in history that actually records and lists the 27 documents that actually make up what we consider our present-day New Testament, which is also written in Greek. This is our Greek New Testament, right? He's the first one to actually write down this list and say, hey, these are the things that actually make this up. And shortly thereafter, guys like Jerome and Augustine start to circulate the same list. But guys, catch this. Catch this. Most of the people who were living in the time, the majority of the descriptions, by and large, the whole church, had already recognized this list of books, even as early as the first century, as being the inspired word of God. You see, all this did, the compilation, is it bound it together and it gave it credence. They were already inspired before they ever entered into this. Now, here's the deal. This is the first time in history, in the 4th century, when the New Testament scriptures are compiled, these 27 documents, and the 39 documents of the Old Testament or the Tanakh are compiled and they're put side by side and now they're bound into one thing that we call the Bible. But guys, the binding doesn't make the Bible. You see, the words the gospel writers and Paul are not inspired because they are in this book. They were included in this book because they were already inspired. You all understand this? People had already seen these scriptures as reliable and sacred and inspired in scripture before they were ever included in a binding we call the Bible. Guys, that is hugely important for us to understand because how we get the Bible in the first place 
changes the way in which we approach it and how we apply it to our life. Now, um, here's the deal. Um, we now have the Bible, uh, but there's a statement that Andy Stanley has made here uh, recently that I've been staring at, and, and it's drastically changed the way in which I approach and communicate the Bible itself. And this is what he says. He says, the Bible did not create Christianity. Now, I know that, that might, like, on the onset, that might cause some consternation for you. It did for the first time like, I heard this, okay, because I have a great respect and I hold the Bible in high regard. But the Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity is the result of an event, which is the resurrection, that created a movement, which is the church, that produced sacred and reliable texts that were collected and bound into a book. You see, Christianity was not started or sustained through this book. It was simply supported through this book. Christianity came about because of the resurrection that started the church that then developed the need and the opportunity to have all these collected scriptures into one bound book so that we would have it for confirmation. Now, guys, I, I could have given you some additional facts. I love this, this conversation. I could give you additional facts about the historical and literary reliability of these texts, and they are fascinating and convincing. I, I could also help you navigate through some of the archaeological and the anthropological uh, arguments uh, and facts that actually point to the fact that this book can be trusted, and it can. But proving that the Bible is trustworthy is not the goal for our conversation today. This is why it all matters. You see, when you bind it all together without understanding how it came together, you can actually lose the historical purpose of this text in the first place. You can lose the historical use and the original design of this book. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and it might be a shocking statement for some of you guys, and I get that. You might disagree with me. I'm going to try to, 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 to convince you of it here in a minute, but this is, this is the statement I'm going to make. The Bible was not originally meant to convince people of Jesus, but to confirm what he did and how we should live. The Bible's intended purpose initially was not to convince people of Jesus because people were being told about Jesus long before this was ever compiled. It was meant to confirm Jesus and how we should actually live and interact with the world around us. Now, I understand that that might be hard for some of you guys to understand. Let me make a case for this. Let's go back to Galatians and let's talk about what Paul was talking about. He's talking to the Galatians and the Gentile audience, and this is what he understands. A Gentile audience, let's take it back and piece it together. A Gentile audience would not have seen this Hebrew Bible as being authoritative in their life. This didn't have any specific relevance to them. It would have not been used to convince them of Jesus, but rather to confirm their belief in him. Catch this. When Gentiles became enamored with the particular Jew, which is Jesus, they became enamored with the sacred text of the Jews. Gentiles were not interested in the Jewish religion, but in the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures that pointed to Jesus. You see, the Gentiles' pursuit of Jewish texts were not historical or cultural as much as they were Christological. They were trying to find Jesus through the Tanakh. And they weren't going to the Jewish text for advice on living. And Paul makes this abundantly clear. He says, please do not go back to the way of living under the law. Don't go and do that. That is not what this is for. Instead, they gain an appreciation of this text because they saw Jesus in it. And this is why the Jewish scriptures made their way into the Bible as we know it in the first place. Because it tells a story that points to Jesus. And the Gentiles were actually able to see that better than the Jews could even see that. So it was added to the scriptures. But it was not used to convince people of Jesus but to confirm their belief 
in Jesus. Now, for that matter, let's take it to the, to the New Testament scriptures. For that matter, the documents circulating in the early church, which makes up the New Testament, they were not used primarily for convincing people of Jesus, but rather for confirming their faith and directing them more clearly how to live. And how do we know this? Because the majority of the people that were in these New Testament churches didn't have this for sure, but most of them didn't have these available to them. They had fragments and parts and pieces of these things that were circulating from different churches. And these things weren't used by and large to actually convince people of Jesus, but to confirm what he did and how we should actually live. Now, here's why this all matters. Because somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we came to the conclusion that we actually need to convince people that the Bible is entirely true before they can accept the message of Jesus. In other words, what we've done is we put the Bible in front of people and said, if you can't get through this, you can't get to Jesus. You need to believe this before you can ever believe in Jesus. And what we've done is we've created a stumbling block for people to actually get to Jesus when that was never the way in which the early church approached the message of Jesus. This was always meant to confirm, not to convince people. And so don't get me wrong, I, I believe that there is power in the Word of God. Absolutely there's power in the Word of God. But not in the binding of this book, not even in the, the individual words, but in the truths that this thing conveys in the events of the resurrection in which it, it testifies to, and in the Spirit of God who's actually been given to us, that's where the power comes from. And here's the deal. Although I believe that there is power in the Word of God, and I see this as being authoritative, the large majority of the people that you run into and talk to these days don't see this Bible as being as authoritative as you might. Maybe you're in here today, maybe you have had some issues with the authority of the Bible. Not because of what the Bible says, but because of what else the Bible says, and you don't know how to process through that yourself. You don't know why it is that you, you choose certain things and don't choose other things. You don't know how to give a defense uh, to, to, to Moses exiting um, Egypt and how other, uh, other people might say that that didn't happen the same way it did. But guys, we were never asked to give a defense of the Bible. We were asked to give a defense of the hope that we have in Jesus. Y'all catch this? There's a big distinction. Now, for some of you, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that ends it. Like, that settles it. That you all, that maybe that's good enough for you, but it's not good enough for the vast majority of the people that we talk to today. For, for, for lots of people, the Bible says, or the Scripture teaches, or the Scripture says, is not good enough for them. And so the question I have to ask you is, what do you do when you're talking to somebody and the, and the Bible says doesn't cut it for them? The, the Bible says doesn't convince them that what you're saying is actually true because this book is not authoritative to them. Do you have to convince them that this is all true first before you can get them to Jesus? Or can you find a way to get them to Jesus and use this to confirm their faith in him? Guys, my job as a pastor is not to teach the Bible. Don't get up and leave yet, all right? Y'all stuck through this already, all right? So like, hear me out at the very end of this. My job, my, my job is not to teach the Bible. My, my, my job is to point people to Jesus by communicating the truths that I see in the Bible. You see, when I get to heaven and God asks me to give an accountability, I don't think it's going to be, how well did you teach the Bible, Corey? I think he's going to ask me, how well did you get people to my son? How well did you actually live your life in a way that people saw him? I think that's what he's going to hold me accountable for. And I want to make sure I'm prepared for that. Catch this, guys. For the large majority of modern history, People have not had the Bible to be able to instruct people to get to Jesus. Follow me here for a minute. 
first of all, we already learned the Bible wasn't even compiled until about the 4th century. We didn't have it in the form that we have it right now until about the 4th century. Even then, it wasn't like distributed uh, widely to the masses until about the 1400s when the printing press was, was created. Even then, it wasn't translated into languages that most people could read in the common language. And even when, even when it was compiled and it was translated into languages and it was made available to the vast majority of people, the majority of people were illiterate to be able to read it on their own. The large majority of human history did not have the Bible to convince people about Jesus. And that was some of the most explosive growth that we've seen in church. People still got to Jesus. The message of Jesus continued to spread through all nations. And then the Bible has been used to confirm that message because that was its original intent. That was its original use. So, if this is the case, is it possible that we can communicate the truth of the Bible without actually having to say the Bible says? Because that doesn't hold water with people anymore. Not with everybody, but with a lot of people that you talk to. It won't hold water with them. And if it doesn't hold water with them, why are you still using that? Because you're actually creating a stumbling block. Is it possible to communicate truth without quoting chapter and verse and the Bible says and Scripture teaches? I think so. I do it all the time. I can communicate things that Paul says or that Jesus says in ways that allow people to be able to hold on to them without ever having to take them through the Bible in order to get them to that truth. Is it possible that the historical accounts of, of John and of Luke and of Matthew and of Mark and of Paul are actually more credible these days than the entire compilation of the Bible? Not because of what it says, but maybe because of what else it says. People have a problem with this, but you know what? I can take people back to what John, the best friend of Jesus, actually had to say about him. And I can share my story, and I can share my hope with people, and I can help get them to Jesus, even if it's not through this book. You see, I truly believe that our job is to point people to Jesus. In, in my mind, this is how I see this, this working out. I see Jesus at the middle of the target, and you got people that are all over the place when it comes to faith in Jesus. And our job is to be able to live our lives and ask questions and tell stories and make statements that point people to Jesus. That's our job as followers of his. But, but what happens is, 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 as we start to point people to Jesus, they have all these obstacles in their way. They, they have these conversations. I'll talk to somebody sometime and I'll start talking to them about Jesus. And, and they'll start asking questions about dinosaurs. You know, it's like, dude, I love dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are awesome. You know, but like, can, can we put dinosaurs aside for a moment? Let's talk about Jesus, and we, then we can come back and talk about Tyrannosaurus Rex, all right, dude? Because I, I, I like raptors and Tyrannosaurus Rex. We can do that, but I don't need to convince somebody of, like, the proper uh, perspective of dinosaurs before I get them to Jesus. We get that, right? We understand that. Follow me on this. For some people, what we've done is we put the Bible right here. And we've said, you know what? Unless you can believe this whole thing is the inspired Word of God and it actually gives you direction for your life, and it points you to Jesus, then we can't get you to Jesus. Guys, that's a problem. That's a problem. Now, here's the deal. This is not where the Bible resides, because the large majority of history didn't have the Bible in order to get people to Jesus. The Bible is somewhere out here in one of these rings. Now, here's the deal. I'll talk with some people, and sometimes for them, the Bible is a barrier for getting to Jesus, and they just can't get to Jesus without going through this. So I'll have some dialogue with them. I've studied this enough. I'll have some conversations with them. I'll help them, and I'll convince them that this Bible is true and can be, uh, can be trusted, right? Because that's a barrier for them to get to Jesus. But I am not going to put this as a stumbling block in somebody's way to get to Jesus. There's a difference. You see, I'll have a conversation with somebody, and I'll say, hey, listen, I know you struggle with this. 
Is it possible we can put this aside for right now? This, this bounded book that we call the Bible, can we put that aside for just a minute? And let's talk about the one that that book was actually created for. The reason why we have it in the first place was because of a, name, a man named Jesus, because of an event called the resurrection. We have that book because of him. Can we talk about him for a little bit? Because he needs to be the center of our conversation. And after we talk about Jesus, let's go back and use this to confirm what we already know to be true about Jesus, to help give us direction and guidance for life. And guys, I know this is a lot to swallow. I know this is a lot to be able to handle, but I truly believe that when you understand how these things actually came to be and how they were formed, it will help you not only to be able to approach it, but also to apply it to your life in ways that are most beneficial so that you don't use it wrong in your own life and you don't use it wrong in other people's lives. And it doesn't become a stumbling block for people to get to Jesus. Now next week, we're actually going to dive in deeper to how we should actually approach the two sections of our Bible that we call the New Testament and the Old Testament. The, the, the New Testament and the Old Covenants. Okay, We're going to do that because there's a problem with how we approach this. When we bind them all together and we call it the Christian Bible, what we do is we unknowingly give it equal authority to the whole thing. Now, here's what I mean by this. Equal in inspiration? Absolutely. Equal in application? We all know that that's not true. But how... How if these things are distinct? How if these things are separate? How if Jesus did something new, are we supposed to interact with the Old Testament? And how are we supposed to receive the New Testament? We're going to come back and we're going to talk about that. And what I want to encourage you guys to do is just kind of homework assignment. This week, I actually want you guys to go through and read Galatians chapter 3, because that's what we're going to be in next week. And when you go to read this, you're going to see Paul talking to the Galatians about this very thing. And he starts to split these covenants up. And he actually points to this guy named Abraham, who God gave a promise to. And that happened actually 430 years before the law even, even came into effect. And, and what he says is this. He says, the promise I gave to Abraham and the covenant I made through the law, through Moses, both of these things were actually fulfilled in Christ. The law was fulfilled in Jesus and the promise was fulfilled in Jesus. And that changes everything. It makes it new. The covenant was completed. Now we have a new covenant that we live under. So how should we interact and process through life and approach things and use the Bible with that understanding? And Aaron's going to bring that message to us next week. So hopefully you guys won't miss out on that. Let's pray. And then you all can be, we'll move to another song. Father, thank you. Thank you for this conversation today. I know it's a mouthful. Father, I know this is just a lot um, for people to take in. And, and I know people here are at all different stages in their belief in you and their understanding of the Bible. And Lord, I pray that not for one minute that anybody hearing this message would think that we value the Scriptures any less, but Father, that we would approach them rightly and be able to use them better. Lord, I, I pray that you would help give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. You'd give us an understanding of it so that we might be able to communicate truths that point to your son, Jesus. That's what this is all about. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.